morning, everyone. This is going to be a special day because the Lord is in it. This is the day that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. If you go to live stream, welcome. Give us a thumbs up or a like and share that link with someone. Glad you decided to log in and view our service today. Whether you in the house, please turn off your, not turn it off, but mute your phones, your pacemakers, your laptops, whatever you got that's going to ring off in here. <laughs> We're going to go before the Lord, just enjoy his presence. Father, we glorify your name and we honor you. Hallelujah. You are wonderful and great and good that you chose us for such a time as this. Lord, I don't know exactly why you're unfolding that. Every day we spend time with you like in this service and we hear your word. You unpack the reason why you chose us for this moment. But you definitely did. We could have been born in any other country, in any other era, but you chose us for now. And Lord, we want to say yes to whatever you have in store. So we ask you all to forgive us for the times we have not said yes to you this week. Whether through outright rebellion or just other things getting in the way of putting you first. So we ask you to forgive us, Lord. We concentrate on you, Lord. We're going to have communion today. We ask you to prepare our hearts to receive the elements, oh God. We don't want to not appreciate the body and the blood that are represented today. If there's anything that comes up, Lord, even during the time of us worshiping and singing, Lord, just give us a heart that was just ready and eager to repent. During the teaching today, there's something you bring up in our hearts, oh God, that needs to be changed, oh God. We want to be soft and tender before you so that you could change us. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your goodness. In Jesus' name. Oh, beautiful, oh, spacious skies, oh, amber waves of green, oh, purple mountains, majesty above the fruited plains America. America, God shed His grace on thee and crowned thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea and crowned thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. 
thank you, Lord. Lord, we pray for this country that you blessed us in. If nothing else, you put us in at the time for this as kingdom of priests to intercede for this country. From the top to the bottom, Lord, in every city, every state, and every hamlet of, of this country, God, we need you. We're in desperate need for you. Thank you for the good times of the past, but Lord, we're in trouble. We ask you for mercy, Lord. We don't deserve it, but we ask you for mercy, Lord. In the name of Jesus. And what's left that's remaining, those that can be saved, oh God, we ask you to lead them to us, whether we're in a supermarket, filling up for gas in a gas station, at a Waffle House, <laughs> wherever we are in our subdivisions, Lord, if someone needs you, and we all need you, but someone needs to know you, lead them to us and grant us the words and the boldness and the wisdom to plant those seeds and bringing in a last-minute harvest, oh God. In the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Greater things are yet to come. Greater things are still to be done in this country. Greater things are yet to come. Greater things are still to be done in this country. Greater things are yet to come. Greater things are still to be done here. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me, my name is graven on his heart. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, tongue can bid me this depart. No tongue can bid me this depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made it Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look. 
look on him and pardon me to look on him and pardon me The great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One in himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God, hallelujah, hallelujah, praise the one risen Son.
dark is the stain that we cannot hide. grace freely bestowed on all who believe you that are longing to see his face will you this moment his grace receive grace grace God's grace grace that will pardon and cleanse with Stoned by the ones he gave, 
that song so much meaning so much truth as we uh, get ready to partake of the elements I have um, 
I have three things I wanted just to share with you. I have three observations. One is it's the physical, the spiritual, and emotional sufferings of Christ Jesus that, um, that happened to him. But I also want you to understand that there's everyone out here today in this, in this um, congregation, you've also phys uh, felt physical, spiritual, and emotional sufferings also. Now, let's give Jesus a hand, a hand clap of praise today because he alone is worthy. Absolutely. You know, when I was a little boy, I was about five years old. Um, you know, I was complaining to my mother. I wanted to, I wanted to go outside. And she said, no, you can't go outside. And I kept on and I kept on and I kept on. And I was driving her crazy with that. And, you know, this was, you know, back in the, Back in the 60s, and you know, women had these uh, flat-heeled shoes, and my mother took one of the flat-heeled shoes off and threw it at me, and it hit me right in the mouth. Now she didn't mean to do it, but it busted my lip in two, and <laughs> so I carried that physical scar. Uh, but we laugh about it today. You know, at the time it wasn't funny, but over time, uh, you know, and I kid her about that, and and so I'm sure she's going to see this, so mom. I had to put that out there to you, then, uh, but we can laugh about it. But also, too, in 1978, um, I had a sister that, that um, had passed away. Now, our birthday is the same day, two years apart. So I don't really like selling my birthday because it's a, it's a reminder. It's, it's emotional. Because, um, uh, you know, uh, my sister and I were close. And uh, to be taken at an early age like that, it can leave an emotional scar. And, but I can find comfort in the spiritual scar of it is that I know where she's at, that now she walks with heavens, that her giraffe had gave her the ultimate healing. And the ultimate healing, because like the song says, we'll all one day be called home. Every one of us. And so I can find healing that he has healed her in that aspect. So I want us today to look at the sufferings of, uh, of, of Jesus. First is the physical suffering. And there's two reasons. One, it says the Bible itself does not give many details about the method of crucifixion other than simply saying they crucified him according to Mark 15, 24. And since God himself does not give much detail and the Bible about this form of execution, we just tend to kind of look over it. The second reason is, while sure Jesus' physical suffering was a terrible one, it was not unique since other human beings, other folks during that time period uh, uh, went through the same experience at that time. So we kind of tend to gloss over that also. Um, death by crucifixion was practiced from about 600 years before Jesus' time. And, and the Persians is the one that came up with the, the method of crucifixion. The Greeks later practiced it as well, but the Romans took it to an entirely new level. They reserved crucifixion as a form of punishment for the most hardened criminals. It was to send the message to the people, this is what will happen to you if you go against Rome. That's why Rome would typically crucify people at a spot uh, where many would travel, and as the travelers saw the victims... Uh, suffering on the side of the road on these crosses. It sent a, it sent a powerful message. 
and sometimes it would take days uh, for the um, you know for them to uh, finally expire, um, and that just has to be you know in agony and, and just pain and and it's really really harsh. But it's sent that message: don't don't resist wrong, or this will happen to you. The primary needs for two individual pieces of woods and three nails. The two pieces of wood would be put together to form like a T, then a cross. Um, the cross beam was called paddle bellum, and the vertical beam of the post was called stipes. The first process involved the victim being flogged with short strip whips with pieces of material bones embedded in it and attached to the solid wooden handle. The whipping itself could kill a man, leave him permanently crippled, uh, since it would rip the flesh off the back and on the sides. Uh, tremendous pain. The victim would then be forced to carry the crossbeam through the town toward the place of crucifixion. That's why carrying one's cross meant be prepared to die. Folks, this was a one-way trip. You wasn't coming back. Um, the flogging uh, was so bad it left it left him un, uh, left Jesus unable to carry his cross, and that's according to Mark fifteen twenty one. He had to have help. Uh, very lo uh, a lot of loss of blood, uh, the excruciating agony and pain that he went through. It says, and when the victim came to the place of crucifixion, the cross beam would then would then be attached to the top of the vertical beam or post. One of the beams would have a hole; the other had a square peg, so they could easily attach and deattach because they use it over and over again. Uh, it had subsequent use. The assembled cross would then be laid flat on the ground. The victim would be laid out over that cross. And then they would strip him from all of his clothing just to expose more shame to him. At times, the, the victim would be given an a intoxicating, a intoxicating drink to numb the effects of the pain. It was not done because of the kindness toward the victim. It was done so the victim wouldn't resist. The victim would then be tied to the ropes or nailed, depending on how long the soldiers would want the suffering to last. Obviously, in Jesus' case, he was nailed. According to John 20, 24 through 27, the victim's hands would be stretched and nailed on the crossbeam. One nail on each hand, the nails would, would be driven in the wrists and not in the palms. Because, you know, we see all the pictures with the, with the uh, nails being driven through the palms. Well, the body couldn't hold it. It would rip through. So they, so they actually drove the nails through the wrist. So it supported the weight. Um, why the nails won't tear away the flesh and cause the victim to drop the hands. The third nail would, would be driven through both feet and the, at the junction between the feet and the legs. That way the feet would be fastened to the, ver the vertical beam. The specific crime or, or uh, condemned man would be written on the board and attached to the, to the cross. That was to let everyone who passed by know what crime that the person committed. The soldiers would then lift the cross and drop it into a deep hole. It's vertical. Just the jarring that would cause the cross being dropped would bring excruciating pain. As though the head would explode and then would begin the hours or even days of imaginable and horrendous pain. The forearms would go numb and the shoulders would feel like they were being pulled from their sockets. The chest cavity would be pulled out, upward and outward, 
making it difficult to uh, exhale in order to draw a fresh breath. And to draw a breath, the victim would have extensively push himself up with his legs uh, while this would help the victim get another breath. So breathing was very, very tough. Uh, it would also be extremely painful. How so? Because the effort required pulling, putting the body's weight on the nails, holding the feet, bending the elbows, and pulling upward on the nails, driven through the wrist. It would also cause tremendous pain in the nerves, and pain like that was going on. It was like, it was like fire. It was like just the, the flesh was just on fire. And with each breath, the victim's back that was torn open due to the flogging would also experience pain since it would scrape against the wooden cross. And when the legs would weaken, cramp and tremble, the victim would then arch his back for relief. The constant shifting of the position was the only way to try to cope with the pain in the arms, chest, back, and legs. And in the meantime, they will, uh, to survive, would keep the victim crying out in pain. And that would uh, continue until he would be just too exhausted and too hydrated and too physically weak to pull in another breath. Death would eventually occur hours uh, later. Uh, usually came by the, the uh, suffocation, not necessarily, through, not necessarily through the blood loss, but, but um, fluid filling up on the, on the lungs and, and just trying to get breath. Um, so that's a glimpse into the, the physical suffering that Christ faced on the cross for you and I. The next uh, observation I want to uh, share with you is the spiritual suffering. As awful as the physical suffering was and general dreadful, the spiritual suffering was much harder to, for our Lord. Why? Why do we say that? It's because across Jesus experienced the, psych the psychological pain of bearing the guilt of all of our sins. Feeling such pain, imagine how it must have been for our Lord Jesus, who never sinned. He was perfectly holy when he lived on this earth. No sinful words, no sinful actions, not even one uh, wicked thought. He hated sin, and even the very thought of sin caused him to rebel against it instinctively. Yet all he hated, and that all was not in him, was poured fully on him. In other words, all the sins were fully poured on him. The Bible makes this abundantly clear. In Isaiah 53, 6, said the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In Isaiah 53, 12, he bore the sins of many. John 1, 29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, a sin offering for us. Hebrews 9, 28, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. John 8.46 and 1 Peter 2.22, he was being treated as though he committed those sins, thus bearing the punishment. As a result, all who put their faith in him could be forgiven of their sins because Jesus already suffered in their place and paid the price for the freedom with his blood, the song that we just sang about, the blood that he shared. It's all in the, in the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20 uh, through 28. Again, ransom refers to paying the price, his blood for our sins. That's redemption terminology. And the shedding his blood on the cross 
Jesus not only bore the guilt for our sin, but as a substitute, he also absorbed all of God's wrath against sin. It was all poured out on him. John 1, John, uh, 1 John 2, 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Romans 3, 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And by absorbing God's wrath for sins on the cross, Jesus made the provision that those who trust in him, those who put their faith in him, and will never experience God's wrath for their sins. Man, what an awesome. So that a glimpse of the spiritual sufferings Jesus went through on the cross to your and my sins. The third observation that I will share with you is the emotional suffering. Having seen the physical, spiritual aspect of Jesus' suffering, now we'll look at the uh, emotional suffering. By emotional suffering, I'm referring to the sense of abandonment Jesus experienced on the cross. Everyone abandoned him. Imagine if you're going through a time in life. Would you rather be alone or abandoned by your spouse, your children, or even friends? Or would you rather have someone alongside? The answer is obvious. Even one person close is such a blessing during a great time and a great trial. Yet Jesus was left alone during the time of his greatest suffering. Anyone that anyone could ever go in his very time of need, he was abandoned by all. First of all, he was abandoned by his close friends, the eleven, his chosen. He already must have felt the pain of Judas's betrayal, and the eleven who promised to be with him abandoned him when he was arrested. A second, he faced the greatest emotional pain anyone can face is when God the Father abandoned him. Yes, God the Father. On the cross, as Jesus bore our sins, the perfect fellowship between the, the relationship between the Father and the Son, a fellowship that existed for all eternity, before this time was temporarily, temporarily broken, especially between noon and 3 p.m. That's when the time that God was pouring his wrath out on his Son, who bore it all. In fact, the emotional suffering was so great, which caused Jesus to cry out in that very familiar cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? According to Matthew 27, 46. When we read these words, we can uh, get a little glimpse on how deep the pain and emotional anguish Jesus suffered for you and my, for your and my sins. So we see the physical, spiritual, and emotional suffering that Jesus went through on the cross to redeem us. And may today, may our hearts be moved with a whole resolve from this day forth to grow in our hatred for sin and hatred that will compel us to put, the, put them away knowing what it did to our Savior. And many of our hearts also will be stirred up in love and treasure our precious Lord, Jesus, even more. At this time, I'm going to ask you to come forward and grab the elements. Fullness of God in heavenless faith is gift of love and righteousness. Scorned by the ones he came to save till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for 
On the night that Jesus would be betrayed, so he would be denied. It says during the meal, because they were in, they were eating this Passover meal, which they, they, they um, they've ate many, many times. But this night was different. It says during the meal, Jesus took some bread in his hands. He blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples. Say, take eat. This is for my body. Let's partake of it. Jesus picked up a cup of wine and gave thanks. He gave it to his disciples and said, Take and drink it. This is my blood. And with it, God makes his agreement with you. It will be poured out for the many. For the, for their um, people will have their sins forgiven. Let's partake. And he gave him a promise. He says, from now on, I'm not going to drink any wine until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. I promise that he gave to you and I. I know I'm, I got one last thing. I'm going to read you a, a lyric. It says, if I had only known the last time would be the last time, I would have put off all the things I had to do. I would have stayed a little longer, held on a little tighter, now what I'd give one more day with you. Because there's a wound here in my heart where something's missing. And tell me that it's going to heal with time. But now I know you're in a place where all your wounds have been erased. And knowing yours are healed is healing mine. The only scars in heaven, they won't belong to me and you. There'll be no such thing as broken. And, the, and all the old will be made new. And the thought that makes me smile now, even as the tears start to flow down, is that the only scars in heaven are on the hands that hold me now. There's encouragement for anyone who has lost someone they love. It's a comforting, it's a comforting reminder that in the end, Jesus wipes away every tear, eradicates every disease, 
and heals every wound, that he is still on the throne, he is still, on, he is still in control, he nor sleeps nor slumbers, he knows every thought, he knows every, everything about you, that he knew you before you was even conceived in the mother's womb. He and we as a group of body of believers today, that we believe and we uphold and we lift up the name of Jesus and what he had done for us. And I thank you for allowing me to share with this of you today, congregation. Thank you. James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. You may be seated, and we can dismiss our children. Thank you, Eddie. Good morning. Good to see everyone here this morning. We're going to dive right in. Seven minutes went to 15, Eddie. Good message, though. We're going to be in Judges chapter 18 this morning. And our title is a continued title from last week. It's Character Matters, part two. Character matters. Father, we ask that you speak to us this morning. We thank you for the time we've had with communion when we celebrate in, in remembrance of you and who you are and what you've done and what you're continuing to do as you sit at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. We thank you, Lord, that your heavenly ministry is still in effect. As, as Eddie said, Lord, you're still on the throne. And things are still happening in accordance to your will and your plan. While we don't always understand it with these eyes and with these ears, we submit our hearts unto you, trusting you, knowing that your plan will be accomplished as you see fit according to your will. May we humble ourselves before you and receive that will and walk in it joyfully, Lord. Now teach us this morning what you have for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, we uh, looked at two individuals, Micah and the lone Levite priest. And both of these men had questionable character. Micah was a thief and an idolater. And the priest was self-serving and willing to trade his calling as a Levite priest to serve as a personal priest for Micah. To be his own priest, to do whatever, all for a wage, place to stay, food on the table, he pretty much decided, hey, this is what I want to do because it's easy. It's an easy thing to do. And so that's what he did. And everyone seemed to get what they wanted out of this deal, and they were fairly content at the moment. But false gods and false motives will never lend to a long-lasting relationship. They'll all come, come crashing down at some point because there's no foundation. There's no foundation to build upon. There's no substance. And for us today, we have to come to the point where our contentment is found in our relationship with Jesus Christ, not in our circumstances with what we have or what we don't have. 
with what we like, what we don't like, what we want, what we don't want. All of those things really don't matter when it comes to a relationship with Jesus Christ because he is our everything. He is our substance. He's the one that gives us and fulfills all of our needs. Circumstances change. Emotions change. People change. But God never changes. He's consistent in who he is. In Malachi 3, 6, it says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you're not consumed, O sons of Jacob. In Hebrews 13, 8, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if he's the same, he's the only constant that we have. Because we'll change with the wind. The next fad that comes across, oh, I want to wear those clothes. How is it? I don't know who the, I guess it's somebody in Hollywood or somewhere along the line, some outfit somebody wears, next thing you know, everybody's wearing it. Some new brand, everybody's doing it. Some new makeup, everybody's wearing it. Whatever it happens to be, we follow whatever seems to be popular. Well, then when that fades, what happens? A new one comes along. Our emotions change. Oh, everything that was perfect for us before. Have you ever noticed exercise equipment? Oh, the best ever. Never anything like it. Well, wait a minute. You just said that about the one you had last year and last year's model. What changed? New look? Maybe go a little faster? Because that makes it, you have to work harder, so that's not good. So really, what makes it better? It's all in the motivation of the person trying to sell it to you. It's marketing. And most of them are lies. But they're designed to take our emotion into their realm to get what they're selling. So we too can have a better life. If every diet plan that said it would do what it was supposed to do, there'd only be one. The first one. If every piece of exercise equipment did what it was supposed to do. Listen, it's not going to come and knock on your door and tell you to come and get on this, this bicycle. That bicycle will be a clothes rack by the third month you've got it. Most For most of us. There are some discipline in here, and I respect you. I don't know who you are, but I respect you. <laughs> but Jesus is the only constant that we have. And if we take our eyes off of him, it could be this, it could be that. It could be food, it could be clothes, it could be a vacation, it could be family, it could be whatever we decide is important. But that's not what's important. What's important is our relationship with the Lord. And the key to receiving the peace that surpasses all understanding that we receive in, that we read about in Philippians chapter 4 all comes from this relationship, not from the things around us. We'll be disappointed. I know people in, 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 in my life personally who, who can't seem to find contentment or peace or joy because they're always looking to the next event, maybe a birthday. Can't wait for the birthday. Can't wait for birthday. Birthday comes and goes. They're depressed. Can't wait for the vacation. Oh, we're going to go to Florida. We're going to be on the beach. Oh, I'm so excited. The vacation lets you down. You got to come home. And what's at home? Same thing was home before you went on your vacation. You. <laughs> Wherever you are, there you will be. And that's where your, your contentment has to be. In Jesus, it can't be in anything else. As we're going to see, the, the world that Micah has built will be turned upside down, and his loyal priest is found, is found to not be so loyal. 
And this is what happens when you don't build your house on a solid foundation. So let's begin Judges chapter 18, beginning with verse 1. In those days, in those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites were seeking an inheritance for itself to dwell in. For until that day, their inheritance among the tribes of Israel had not fallen to them. Now, I normally like to read a little bit more, but I've got to stop here. got to give you a little background on this. What we're looking at here with the tribe of Dan is that all of the tribes of Israel had their territory that was assigned to them, and they were supposed to inherit to move into. Joshua had kind of broken it all down. It was all given out. But because of the fear and the disobedience of Israel as a whole, many of the people that were supposed to be eliminated or moved out of a territory weren't. They were left there, and they were thorns to the Israelites. We read in Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Balcom and said, I led you up from Egypt. And brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you've not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall be thorns in your side. And their God shall be a snare to you. And this was written at the beginning of the book we're studying right now. This is what was written to them. Because of their, their disobedience, because they have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, he's left these people and did not allow them to drive them out. And Judges 2, 20 through 23, then says, Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk him as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. So what we see here is Israel had a promise. They were, they were, being, they were supposed to fulfill the first part uh, that we have the promise to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give it to you. It's going to be all divided out, and you're all going to have it. Your own territories, every tribe. But they disobeyed. And you go back and read in Deuteronomy chapter 29 and 30 and 31, the, here, the blessings if you obey and the curses if you disobey. And what they're seeing now is part of those curses out of their disobedience. They were not able to go in and take the land the way they were supposed to. Now, this being the case, Dan's given territory was adjacent to the Philistines. And they should have driven them out, but they didn't. And they would be harassed by them continually. They would come into their territory and raid them. So they, too, were too strong for them for them to drive out. So rather than getting on their knees and humbling themselves for the living God and saying, God, we know that you've left them because this is what your word says. But we pray now, if we follow your ways and we submit unto you and we pick and choose to be in relationship with the, God, the holy God of Israel, will you push them aside? But rather than do that, they began to expand out into other territory to see where else they could land. Instead of, because the Philistines were on the south, they went north. 
they actually wound up in the territory of Ephraim. Now, Ephraim was the, the largest tribe. They had more territory, and it was scattered out. So they would wind up finding this area that they're looking for that would be easier for them, an easier place to live, an easier place so they don't have the Philistines constantly taunting them. And this is where we find them in our text this morning. So I wanted to give you that background of why they were seeking a place. Now, verses 2 through 21. So the children of Dan sent five men of their family from the territory, uh, from their territory, men of valor, from Zorah and Eshetal, to spy out the land and search it. And they said to them, Go search the land. So they went to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. While they were there, or while they were at the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. They turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What do you have here? And he said to them, Thus and so Micah did for me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. So they said to him, Please inquire of God that we may know whether the journey on which we will go will be prosperous. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The presence of the Lord will be with you on your way. So the five men departed and went to Laish. And they saw the people who were there. And they dwelt safely in the manner of the Sidonians and quiet and secure. There were no rulers of the land who might put them to shame for anything. They were far from the Sidonians. And they had no ties with anyone. Then the spies came back to their brethren in Zorah and Eshetal. And their brethren said to them, What is your report? So they said, Arise, let us go up against them, for we've seen the land, and indeed it is very good. Would you do nothing? Do not hesitate to go and enter to possess the land. When you go, you will come to a secure people and a large land, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is on the earth. And 600 men of the family of the Danites went from there, from Zorah and Eshetal, armed with weapons of war. Then they went up to, and encamped in Kirjath, Jerium, in Judah. Therefore they call that place Menadan to this day. There it is, west of Kirjath, Jerim. And they passed from there to the mountains of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Evidently, Micah was on a well-driven path, well-torn path, worn path, because everybody finds himself at the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to spy out the country of Laish answered, and said to their brethren, Do you know that there are in these houses an ephod, household idols, a carved image, and a molded image? Now therefore consider what you should do. So they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite man, to the house of Micah, and greeted him. The six hundred men armed with their weapons of war, who were in the children of Dan, stood by the entrance of the gate. Then the five men who had gone to spy out the land went up. Entering there, they took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the six, oh, I'm sorry, and the molded image. The priest stood at the entrance of the gate with the 600 men who were armed with weapons of war. When these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molded image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, be quiet. Put your hand over your mouth and come with us. Be a father and a priest to us. Is it better for you to be a priest to the household of one man or that you be a priest to a tribe and a family of Israel? 
So the priest's heart was glad. And he took the ephod, the household idols, and the carved image and took his place among the people. They then turned and departed, put the little ones, the livestock, and the goods in front of them. So Dan sends these spies. They go into Ephraim. It's an easier land to conquer. It's pretty isolated. These group of people that we can go take now, they don't really have a ruler. There's nobody around, and they're far away from anybody else. We can take this place and make it our own. That was their plan, so that's what they did. And they find themselves at Micah's house, just as the priest, uh, the Levite priest had. And interestingly, when they spoke with the Levite priest, they recognized his voice. Now, this could mean that they actually knew him personally. That's the first inclination. Is that, oh, well, they knew who he was. They heard his voice. It could also mean, though, that they, they heard his dialect and understood his dialect and, the where, and where he came from. And that's what drew them to him. Wait a minute, you're not from here. What are you doing here? Why are you here? What's going on? So they had all these questions for him. Well, whatever the case, they wanted to know some detailed answers of what was going on with him. Now, after the priest had told his story, they asked him to pray to God to see if their journey would be successful. And the priest says, go in peace. The presence of the Lord will be with you on your way. Now, personally, at this point, I don't believe the priest was able to hear from the Lord because of his idolatry, because of the fact that he wasn't really living as a priest for God. He was living as a priest for himself. It's all about him. It's all about what he had, all about the comforts that he had. And so, therefore, he just spoke out, yeah, go in peace. You know, now, listen, we'll see in the story that, that what he told them did come to pass. But it didn't need a prophet from the Lord to see it because this land was so wide open and this group, this city they were going into was really not a huge city and all they had to do was go in there with their 600 men and take it. It wasn't a godly thing. It was a manly thing. But they thought they had heard from God. And once they listened to him, well, then he must be a priest. We're going to make him our priest. Well, that's what they did. They trusted his word, went back and gave their report. Now, it's an important point for us here today. There are only those who want to hear what they want to hear rather than submitting to the Lord and to his word. These Danites wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. And had he given them a different report, they probably would have killed him. Who knows what the real motivation in their heart was. They, we know that they wanted the idols. We know that they wanted the, gold, the, the silver image. We know we wanted all of those things. But rather than them submitting to the Lord, they aligned themselves with one who would tell them what they wanted to hear. Now, 2 Timothy 4, 2-4 tells us to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires... Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to fables. Listen, this is happening in our culture as we speak. There are many groups of people that meet at different times of the week. Sometimes it's Sunday. Sometimes it may be Saturday. Sometimes it could be another day that they've chosen to meet. But if they're not adhering to the full counsel of God's word, but actually telling people what they want to hear, 
then these people are drawn to that. They're drawn to those teachers. That's why you'll see what we call the seeker-friendly churches and the prosperity movement packed with people. They're not going to hear the full counsel of God's Word. They're going to hear what they want to hear. They're going to say, tell me something good. Tell me some good news. I want to hear the positive mental attitude stuff so I can go out and make money and I can be prosperous. That's what they're looking for. It's all about today. It's all about what I'm getting today. Listen, we all live a short little life here. We live in this world in these, these temporary containers. <laughs> some of the containers are pretty, some of them not so much. But we live in these tents. We live in this place. And we think somehow, as believers, we get this mindset that it's all about now. It's all about what we've got here. Listen, when you die, it's gone. You don't carry it with you. You don't have a U-Haul trailer in heaven. Everything's left to somebody else. Maybe your kids. Other family members. Who will do what they see fit with it? The point I'm making here is that we have, to, we have to be on the eternal mindset while we're in the temporary place. Now, it's not wrong to have things. I'm not condemning prosperity. What I'm condemning is when prosperity takes over and it's all about what I've got. And let me ask you the simple question. What if you, what if you lost it? What if you woke up tomorrow and the government walked in and said, I like what you got. Now it's mine. What are you going to do? Are you going to be depressed? Are you going to be sad? Are you going to be angry? Are you mad about the stuff? Your contentment is not there. Or shouldn't be. Your contentment is in Jesus. But today, in our culture, it's all about me. It's the me generation. If you think of every cultural movement today that is really talked about, that is driven, the focus is right here on me. My truth. My being, my body, for the abortion movement. It's all my body. I can do what I want to with my body. Well, what about the body growing in you? Oh, that's just a mask. They, don't, they say they follow science. They don't follow science. Science says that that baby is conceived as a living being. But they don't adhere to that. They don't want to hear truth. They want their truth. Then you've got the... The homosexual transgender movement, all about me. I am this way. I want to be this way. I want my way. Me, me, me. Then you got the racial injustice. The whole group that runs around angry and mad because of something that 200 years ago happened. And here we have this foundation of people saying, I want to live in the past. It's all about me. I want money today because of something that happened to my ancestors years ago. Me, me, me. See, this is the problem. And what happens in the church is when you take your eyes off of the Word of God, you take your focus off of Jesus Himself, and you start catering to these movements, then those movements are walking in the front door and telling you what you can believe, what you cannot believe, and it's sin sitting on the front rows of the church. Thank God everybody's sitting on our front row today. And this is where we're at. We're in the same place that they were at. Seeking their own. Finding something comfortable for them. Taking the easy road. And yet they were still conquering and doing something for themselves. They were, this is what was happening. And this is what's going on today. Listen. 
Denying the full counsel of God's word in order not to offend opens the door for those to come and feed their flesh, not their spirit. We're not to feed the flesh. As individuals, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the one that's not supposed to feed your flesh. But when we come corporately, it's a responsibility of the pastors and the teachers and the leaders of the church to stay focused and preach the full counsel of God's word. And if they're not doing that, there will be consequences. And the truth is, while they may not want to offend those who come, they have offended God. And the consequences will be there when they stand before Jesus. Now back to our text. They give their report, these spies do, and the leaders of the tribe of Dan decide to go up and take the land that they want, specifically the city of Laish. But before they get there, the five spies that had come to Micah's house told them about the idols. So what are you, they said, what are you going to do? What should you do? Oh, well, let's just go. Let's go get it. So they go, and they, 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 um, they want to take it for themselves. Now, this is when it gets interesting. As they're stealing and going through the house, the priest gets a better offer to go with them. It's like, hey, what are you doing? Put your hand over your mouth and be quiet. And then they offer him this deal. Would it be better for you? Wouldn't it be better for you to come and be a priest over this whole group of people rather than this one house? So he willingly goes. And not only willingly, in verse 20, it says, so the priest's heart was glad. Hey, no longer do I just get my yearly wage from this one guy. I might get a whole lot more money. I got a whole group of people. I have more responsibility. I can speak over everybody, not just one. I can be the priest for the whole group instead of just one. Hey, I'm all in. Let's go. And he's the one that grabs the stuff and runs with them. Now talk about loyalty out the window. Micah hired him, brought him in, gave him a comfortable wage. But what did he do? He wanted something better. So he takes off. And again, it reveals the heart of this young priest. Technically, he was a priest in title only. There was nothing holy or righteous about him. He was greedy, he was selfish, and he was self-serving. Now, earlier, we read that he became like a son to Micah. When, hi when Micah hired him, he said, oh, and he stayed with him, he became like a son to him. But as soon as something better comes along, he's gone with the wind. I'm out of here renouncing the relationship that was formed he's doing his own thing this man is a wolf in sheep's clothing we're told today to be aware and watchful because they are among us in the church today matthew seven fifteen says beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ravenous wolves in second peter 2 one through three says, but there was also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, <coughs> excuse me, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bringing themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. 
false teachers will be revealed. For those of us today who are walking in the Spirit and walking in accordance to God's full counsel and the Word of God, for those who are really hearing truth and wanting to hear truth and listening for truth and studying truth in the Word of God, we can see and recognize them. But if you're not feasting upon the Word of God, if you're not being ready in season and out of season, if you're not seeking the truth for yourself, how are you going to know when it's right in front of you and there's a lie standing there and it's saying all of these things and you're like, well, it kind of sounds good, doesn't it? That kind of fits. I can, yeah, I can see that. No, we need the foundation of Jesus Christ. We need the foundation of his word. Old Testament, New Testament, full counsel. It all speaks of Jesus. And the Old Testament is all about his coming. The prophetic words that are spoken about his coming. And the New Testament we read when he came. And now we have the latter part of the prophecy yet to be fulfilled when he returns for his people. But the truth that we have to understand is that if we're not awakened to his word, if we're not awakened to his truth and studying ourselves, don't just listen to me. Don't just listen to a preacher on TV. Don't just listen to whoever you like to read and listen to. Study the word of God for yourself because that's where you're going to find the conclusion of the matter. That's where you're going to find where it all adds up or whether it doesn't. There are many today who will take one verse and build a church out of it. One verse, they'll build their whole life on it. Well, what happens when things don't align to, to that? Well, they'll rewrite something. They'll change something to make it fit. But in a true relationship with Jesus Christ, who does not change, then we can stay consistent with him. And there is no change in our behavior. We now understand. We now walk it out. And we're able to see and recognize the evil that's around us. Now, these false prophets will reap what they sow. But we need to pray for wisdom. We need to pray for discernment. We need to be watchful. And again, we need to be consistently in the word so that we'll know false teaching when we hear it and stand against it in boldness. And don't cower down. Do not cower down to the cultural movement today that tells you, oh, this is godly, this is good. Isaiah very specifically wrote, what will be considered good is evil. What is considered evil will be good. It's basically flipped. And that's the culture that we live in. It's upside down and backwards. Because instead of focusing on the creator, the living God, we've tried to mold a God into our image. He will not be there. That's not the true God. True and living God is going to bring judgment. But it's his timing and his place. So right now, why? Why, are we, why is he allowing all these things? First question anybody wants to know. Why does God allow this evil? Why did these happen? Why does this happen? It's because he's a merciful God. He's given each one the opportunity to change and receive him. That's the mercy of God in the midst of a broken generation. Yeah, people are going to suffer because of it, because of sin. Sin is in all of us. We're born in it. We're born with a sinful nature. For anyone who will come to you and say, well, everybody's born good. They just sometimes do bad things. That's a lie from the pit of hell. We're not born good. We're born in a sinful nature. That nature has to die. And only in Jesus Christ 
can that happen? Now, verses 22 through 31. When they were good way from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah, Micah's house, gathered together and overtook the children of Dan. And they called out to the children, children of Dan. So they turned around and said to Micah, What ails you? <laughs> I love the language. What ails you that you've gathered such a company? So he said, you've taken away my gods, which I made and the priest, and you've gone away. Now what more do I have? How can you say to me, what ails you? And the children of Dan said to him, do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry men fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the children of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned back and went to his house. So they took the things that Micah had made and the priest who had belonged to him and went to Laish to a people quiet and secure. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. There was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon and they had no ties with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to the Beth Rehob. So they rebuilt the city and dwelt there and they called the name of the city Dan after the name of Dan their father who was born to Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. Then the children of Dan set up for themselves a carved image, and Jonathan, the son of Gershon, the son of Manasseh, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image, which he made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. So Micah, he gets word about what's happened. All of his neighbors come together, and they go after this, the, the, these people, these 600 men of war. And they ask, why have you come out against us? Now, hear what he says. You've taken away my gods, which I have made, and the priest, and you've gone away. What more do I have? Does this man even hear what he's saying? Does he not even consciously recognize what he just said? The gods of which he made? They're not gods at all. And this proves it. This proves that there's nothing to them. They're objects. How do we know? A true God doesn't need to be defended. A true God will not be stolen from you. A true God has power within himself. These have no power. They're just images. Man cannot make a God. And the true living God is and always has been powerful, the most powerful, the supreme being. He made us, not the other way around. Micah was so far from the truth of who God was that he was devastated that his gods were stolen from him. It doesn't make sense when you read it this way, does it? It doesn't add up. Micah. If they were really gods, you would still have them. All you had to do is say, I'm praying to that little silver thing over there to turn on them and do something. They all get sick and you can come back. They were taken. They were made by hands. They were taken by hands. A true God cannot be. And I'll tell you that this morning. Our living God cannot be taken away from us. Nor can we be taken away from him 
Romans 8, 35 through 39 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loves us or loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that is a word you can stand on. And that is the truth that the living God who dwells in you by the power of the Holy Spirit cannot be taken from you. There's no power that can do it. This is our hope and security in Jesus Christ. But hear me this morning. If your hope is in a God that you've designed to fit into your little box, just a small wind of opposition will remove it from you. You have to go rebuild another box. Because he won't fit. It won't go. Or it's just it's taken. The minute you face suffering or persecution, you will abandon your little God. Because he didn't do what you wanted him to do. Wait a minute. I created this God of prosperity for myself. Why am I broke? I need another God. Wait a minute. I created this God to make everything easy and nice. There'll be no mountains to climb. It's all going to be beautiful all every day. Sun rises on this side, which it does. Set sun goes over here. But everything in between is going to be nice and perfect. It's all going to be good. Pull up your bootstraps. That's not a God. That's a pipe dream. That's a Santa Claus. A genie in a bottle. Get what you want every time you want it. No. As a believer. Now, I want you to hear this this morning. As a believer, you will suffer for the name of Jesus. Why? Because the world is heading straight to hell. And they hate Jesus Christ. They hate him. Jesus told us. The world hated me. They're going to hate you. So when we're in these places, we have something to stand upon. One who's already our forerunner, who has already done the work for us. He took all the sin upon himself. He died. He rose again. He sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for the saints. What's happening right now? He is guiding us through this dark world. But we're going to be affected by it because this is a sinful place. Darkness and light collide. They have no, they can't abide together. They can't. And we're the light that is left in this dark world. We have a purpose. We have a role. That's why we're still here. But opposition, persecution will come. Are you going to abandon the God that you have established for yourself? Or are you going to surrender yourself to the true God who will never leave you and you are bound in him? As he is in us, he is in the Father. As the Father is in him, he is in the Father. We are in him, he is in us. We are joined together in a spiritual bind and bond that cannot be broken. But if you haven't put yourself in that relationship in full surrender, then you've still got your little designer God over here. Oh, but, but I still want this and I still want that. Listen, where is your hope grounded? 
and the great God who is, or a little God that can't even protect himself, let alone anybody else. Now, after all is said and done, Micah and this Levite's priest, sin of idolatry, has now been adopted by the whole tribe of Dan, defiling all of them. It's no longer Micah's sin. It's no longer Micah and the priest's sin. It's now Micah and the priest's sin has been given over, and the whole tribe wants it. The whole tribe grabs it. They take a hold. They're not seeking God. They're seeking their own. So they have all these false images, and it said it stayed there as long as the temple, as long as the tabernacles in Shiloh. That's what was going on in the tribe of Dan. As I've said before, and we saw it with Samson, one man's sin doesn't just affect himself. It affects those around him. And those that are seeking something for themselves will be drawn to it. And then you defile not only those in your circle, it, be, it goes outside of your circle, and they're defiled like a volcano. It erupts and destroys many around us. So the question that I leave you with today, do you serve the God that is or a little God that you've conjured up? God, the great I am, has nothing or no one above him. He's not a created being. He created all things. He created all breathing beings. He created all the angels. He created us. He created the world. He created everything. But he has always been. Now, this is a huge thing because a lot of times it's so hard for us to wrap around. And because our finite minds can't understand eternal existence, it's always been. Well, if everything else has been created, God must have been. No, God wasn't created. He is. And he always has been. He sees all. He knows all. And he's absolute, and his judgments are right, and his mercy is everlasting. This is the other truth that we can grab a hold of. These are the characteristics of God. There are things that you cannot deny about God, and these are them. He is absolute. See, here's the thing again. In the world, it's lacking today is, is an absolute. They don't want absolutes. An absolute means you're absolutely in. And you absolutely believe. And you absolutely surrender. But our culture doesn't want that. They want to be able to be their own thing, to do their own thing as they see fit. Oh, today I'm a woman. Today I'm a man. Today I'm a dog. Today I'm whatever you want to be. How can, I mean, how consciously that's ridiculous, let alone on the spiritual realm to where they're just so lost they don't even understand the fact of who God is. See, the God that man makes, and I say that little g, is is weak he's weak he has no absolutes as our emotions change our god changes make him whatever we want him to be he has no power to save us and we have to defend and save him i don't want to be in a position to defend god god defends himself perfectly fine his word defends himself perfectly fine if I want to defend God, I quote the word of God. 
Don't have to go up and argue with somebody else about who God is and what God does. God's word is very clear. If they don't want to see it and they don't want to read it, then I leave them in the hands of God. Say, Lord, I pray that you will open their eyes. But I'll be honest with you, debating non-Christians is really ridiculous. Because they're already set in their mind that logically they've come to a conclusion. What's spiritual is spiritual. And that who does not have their spirit awakened to it cannot understand it. Now there's a place, there's a time and a place for apologetics. But debating typically does not end well. Because these scientists, guys, they can come up with all kinds of things that make sense. Because they don't have God, they can come up with all kinds of other things. And a lot of people say, yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to follow that. But what spirit is spirit. And when the spirit of man is awakened to the things of God, he sees and understands things he cannot understand while he's submitted to his fleshly nature. The Holy Spirit knows the hearts and is seeking those who are looking for him. And we as the church today need to return to our first love and humble ourselves before the true and living God. And then we need to repent for not adhering to the full counsel of God's word and allowing the culture to dictate what we believe. I dare the culture come up and say, no, this is what you should believe is your religion. No, they will not tell me that. What I believe is God's word and his truth, and that's what we're going to stand on, period. Character matters. If you're wishy-washy, you're unstable in all your ways. If you don't believe, you're unstable in all your ways. James talks about when praying for wisdom. Pray believing. If you don't pray believing for, your, for wisdom that you're asking for, you're like an unstable man, tossed as the waves. And that's not who we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be stable in our faith. May we not find ourselves like Micah or the Levite priest who being so self-consumed that they traded truth for false religion, lies, and idolatry. It left Micah with nothing. And think about it where he started. He stole the money from his mom. Instead of chastising, instead of rebuke, instead of correction, she gave him praise for it. said, oh, may God bless you. Now I'm going to put some of the money you brought back that you stole, that was mine, and we're going to make this idol. And you put it in your house, Micah. And he built a shrine. And then the Levite priest comes along. And he had it all. He had it all. A peaceful home. His sons were priests at that time. Before this other one came, he made them priests. And he made this other guy his priest. He had comfort in the home. He had food on the table. He had everything. And his gods were, oh, they were, oh, look at what our gods have done. We're going to have peace in our home now. Because i got a Levite priest. And I've got this idol. And what happens? Somebody comes in. Whoop, it's gone. He goes home with nothing. You can only imagine how empty his home was at that point. Not because of the things that were missing, but because his whole faith in the, in the lie of what he was worshiping was gone. Now what? Go steal more money from your mom. You start over. And the priest became nothing more than a hireling 
that followed a better offer. Listen. Those that are God's, those that belong to Him, they're the sheep that hear His voice. They're the ones that choose to stay and abide. They're the ones that choose to say, not my will, but your will be done. They're the ones that say, I do not have the answers, but I serve a God who does. And I'm going to be honest with you. There are many of you that may have questions. You may come to me with questions, and I'm going to scratch my head. And you know what? I don't have an answer, but I know the one who does. Let's get on our knees, and let's get in his presence, and let's see what he does with this. And he may not give you every answer that you want. He may not. Doesn't mean he doesn't answer your prayer. It just means he may not answer it in the way that you expect, that you want, that you desire. Now, there comes the faith walk. Okay, God, I've put my, my supplications before you. I have sought you. I've laid my life in your hands. This is what I'm desiring. But if it's not your will, then I have to come to the place in my heart and my mind to say, not my will but yours be done. And I'm okay with your will, whether I understand it or not. I'm okay with not getting the boyfriend or the girlfriend or the new job or whatever it might be. I'm okay being where I am. Why? Because I'm serving you and you know what's best for me. That's what a relationship with God should look like. But many, many are turned away because they think that God is that genie in the bottle and they've created him to be that and when he doesn't fit the bill doesn't give it to them then they're just mad and they're going to pout at him well, listen God's big enough to handle your pouting and I praise God that he doesn't bring judgment every time that happens or none of us would be here but what I do know is that he's a merciful, patient, loving God. But he is also a God of justice. All things will be dealt with. But we need to know him today. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is in you. The kingdom of God is in you. It's here. It's now. It's available right as we speak. Yes, we will have an eternity with Jesus in his presence. But right now, we are in his presence because of the Holy Spirit in us. And we have the word. We need to focus on that. Not on the circumstances. Not on our troubles. And a matter of fact, if you have a lot of troubles, here's one way to deal with them. Pray for somebody else. Spend your time praying for somebody else and taking your eyes off yourself. That sometimes brings a peace to your circumstance that you can't quite understand either because now your heart is now more concerned about somebody else than yourself. And Philippians chapter 1 tells us that very thing. You know, be in unity with one another. And when you're in like-mindedness, putting other people's concerns above yours, what happens? It changes the entire context of who we are in Christ. His spirit becomes alive in us. And actually gives us general, genuine concern and love for our brothers and sisters. Rather than hiding in the corner and whining about our own problems. We're going to have problems in this world. We're going to have suffering. But we have a hope that cannot be taken. Because we serve the only true living God. Amen. Father we thank you for your word. I thank you that you're open our eyes to see, Lord, the characters that we read about. And all characters in the Bible have flaws. There's none 
We can't look at any one of the patriarchs. We can't look at any of the judges. We can't look at any of the kings and see that there are not flaws in all of them. And Paul wrote to the church. He said, listen, he said, I give these things to you as examples. I give these as examples. And Lord, we can see how your mercy was consistent. We can see how your justice was consistent. We can see how your character is consistent. And today, because we are in this season of grace and we're in this season of mercy, we're not seeing the judgment on the world right now. But that doesn't mean it's not going to come. And may we look and see your mercy upon the lost. Because truly, that's why we're still here. If the church was not to be here, if you were to save us and take us home, then who would be the light to shine? We're to be that light. And we're to shine into this dark world. And we're to let that light be seen. And your spirit then will prick the hearts of those who have ears to hear. And you will bring them unto you. We don't save anyone. It's not about my words. It's not about my message. It's about the Holy Spirit saying, listen, I want to use you. Speak what I tell you to say and let me do the rest. And that's what we're called to do. Submissive, obedient, believing, loving people in a dark world. Show us how to do that, Lord, because it's so dark. Sometimes I just want to hide away. I don't want to get up and face it. I get angry. But Lord, even if it's a righteous anger, it can't be justified if I don't speak your word. Your word and your spirit is what does the work. We just have to be, all we have to be is willing vessels. Use us how you see fit. And instead of us making you be what we want, I pray you will mold us into what you want. And see the work that you do through your people who are obedient to you. Thank you, Lord. We praise you. We honor you. We worship you. We desire you above all things. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. No scheme of man could ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home Here in the power of Christ I'll stand No power of hell nor scheme of man Could ever pluck me from his hand Till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. We have heard God's word. We have praised him in song. We have shared sweet fellowship. long as we leave this place in Jesus tender care we will share his love with people everywhere may 
bless y'all. Have a great week.